Welcome to Media Democracy, a podcast about politics, the media, and the politics of the media. I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Tom Mills. Tom, tell the listeners what we're going to be talking about today. Well, um, this is going to be the last show of the season, as it were. We'll be back soon with a whole new raft of shows and, uh, and, and interviewees. But uh, we thought we'd do the last show of the season by looking back on things um, and reflecting on different issues we covered, but particularly to think about what's happened, what's changed, and and what hasn't, basically. So our first episode went out at the end of June. So let's start at the beginning, I think, Dan. Um, sure. With, what, with the rationale for the show. Why did we start yeah. it? How's it worked out? What's changed? So I think looking back, we started the show partly because of the the partial rupture um, that uh, the general election result represented in a very, what had been a very smooth media political narrative about how Corbyn was unelectable, the leftward move of the Labour Party was a lurch to oblivion, and there was this enormous sort of um, condescension that surrounded uh, Labour in the early stages of the campaign. Um, I vividly remember uh, on the Today programme you had Raphael Baer and Matty Dancona who would do a sort of summing up of the, the week in the, the campaign every Friday on the Today programme. And it sounded like it sounded like a, a sort of cartoon, self-satisfied liberal talking to themselves. It that sounded like, like that because that's what it was. Well, they're not literally cartoons. But... Well, it turned, A, they're not literally cartoons and B, they're not literally two different people. <laughs> But there was a there was a sense that like it was like it was like they were there were two talking heads who were pretty much um, interchangeable both in their demeanour and their, their sort of vocal style, but also just in, in all their kind of coordinates what they what they thought was commonsensical. And I think that that kind of that sort of soft centre consensus um, about politics uh, was shaken. Um, in June, and it certainly gave me a degree of confidence that maybe there was a, a chance to start talking about these substantive issues uh, in in media policy, uh, in the in the structure of the media at the moment, and how we might think about changing it. Um, and as uh, at the time, there was a degree, I suppose, of soul searching um, by uh, by commentators, in particular, people saying, "Well, why didn't I see?" Uh, the viability of the Corbyn project, and there was a lot of sort of head scratching, um, and that has very much died down. How long did um, it lasted, from your recollection? I think it was only I think a few weeks. About yeah, maybe five minutes. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like it, like as in a way, it was a bit like the post mortems after the financial crisis. It was kind of like we need to talk about this for as long as um, it's it's like unavoidable that we talk about it. But things will move on, like elite discourse will start throwing up new themes and we can, you know, with the, with the passage of time, we can sort of discreetly leave this alone without really getting to the fundamentals of anything. So what, what tended to happen, I think, was commentators would say, I made a mistake, things, I've got things wrong um, and I'm going to try much harder in the future. Um, 
and it was and I think this is a really this is a sort of traditional theme in media self-examination is like the the sort of the conclusion reached through you know through arduous reasoning is to say you know what we are awesome but we are not quite awesome enough and we're going to work even harder to be just that bit more awesome yeah and that really is the sum of of the kind of critiques that um journalists really level at themselves if there's a problem with the bbc is that it's not quite bbc enough and if it could just try and be even more BBC, then that, that would resolve yeah, a lot of the issues. That's exactly right, because there is a kind of, there's a perfection of balance, there's a perfection of, of um, impartiality, an ideal state, which they can never quite achieve. So they can always look back and go, could we have done a bit better mm. uh, in presenting all sides of the argument? And in a sense, as long as they have been able to substantially control the way that debate plays out, um, it's it seems like a plausible debate, right? It, it seems like this is a, an institution working hard to correct its inevitable human failings, right? That no, no, no one's infallible. I vividly remember Martha Carney. She did a um, a piece on um, a survey. Uh, I think it was a Gallup poll, which was looking at the state of general understanding about key points of policy. And it turned out that people had no idea um, how the welfare bill broke down. They had no idea how many immigrants were in the country. They had, they had no idea about really kind of key um, elements of the, uh, the, the sort of ongoing debate. Right? They, didn't, they didn't have a, a grasp on the facts around which issues like austerity, issues like uh, immigration were being discussed. And at the end of her interview with the, the, the pollster, she said, you know, we're just going to have to try harder. Um, and the idea is that there's nothing wrong with um, how the media is organised. It's just that, you know, sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we don't put in those extra hours. And they miss things. Um, that's the, there's a lot of talk about, oh, we missed something, you know. Um, maybe we were too right. focused on X, Y, or Z. And there was something else going on that sort of missed our attention. But it's always, yeah, the, the, there's never any reflection on... Um, on the extent to which some failings or missing things might actually reflect the way that the media's structured. Um, right. And there's and I, and I think interesting there's never any thought about what would have happened to you professionally if you had noticed that thing. Right? And the answer is almost certainly you would have you would have been punished for it. You would have been marginalized for it. You would it would not have served your career in 2006 as a journalist to say Hang on a second. The economy is fucked. Give my language. Um, I think we can't swear on here, then. There wouldn't have been it, that. Wouldn't have been the ideal way to behave as a financial journalist. Yeah. At worst, you wouldn't get any credit for it. I mean, you sorry. Would, at, at best, you wouldn't get any. Um, credit yeah. For you it certainly, there's no. There's no incentive in that sense to be to be right against the conventional wisdom. And if you're if you've got sources in the city, you've got sources in in um, in the treasury at the time, or you've got sources in in uh, in, in Parliament and the government, saying stuff like that is just it's just not seen as being you're not being helpful, you're not being sensible, um, and you're put you're pitting yourself against um, people like central central bankers who are taken as being uh, still taken as being. Um, almost sort of theological sources for discussion of the economy. So, so yeah, these kind of these sort of post mortems, autopsies, they never really engage in the 
in the system of incentives and threats, um, that, and they they fall back into um, talking about the need to be a bit more awesome. Um, so, as I say, there was a brief moment of of reflection. Uh, bless them, the the newspapers and the, and the broadcasters aren't really capable of of taking their um, shortcomings seriously. I mean, we could talk more about um, why they miss Corbyn, but I think it's pretty obvious. Um, it's a matter of fact that they did. It's also a matter of fact that they massively um, uh, they massively favoured UKIP uh, and the UKIP strand of opinion in their coverage in the in the couple of years before the referendum. I think it's worth noting, you know, the the, the theologians of balance talk a lot about the need. And I think you mentioned it in your your excellent piece on Nick Robinson's lecture, which we'll come to later. Um, the the need to not neglect any substantial strand of public opinion yeah. is part of how they would um, codify um, the dogma of balance. And as and Jeremy Gilbert's pointed out that there's a there's a stable twenty five percent of the UK population going back to nineteen forty five, if not before who are basically socialists. They are radical social democrats going on to um, socialists of various stripes. And they believe in substantial state involvement in the economy, substantive state planning, substantive involvement in things like housing provision, and so on and so forth. And that quarter of the population has been almost invisible Certainly, uh, in in for, for a generation, if if not yeah. much longer. And what, you know what what Corbynism really was was that that strand of opinion becoming politically mobilised in in formal politics. I mean, the thing is about you know you, you can talk about missing Corbynism, but like it's not like they didn't pay any attention. I mean, you know they were um, overtly hostile towards Corbynism. That's right. What they That's didn't right. do was um, and and it's the same with. Um, I mean, we talked about this on when we had Sarah O'Connell on the show. It was like it's not that the BBC doesn't report on um, benefit recipients. It's that it, you know it, it portrays it, it. It approaches the story in a certain way and and takes um, certain political agendas as the basis for its reporting. And it's the same with how they treated Corbynism. And that's the thing, you know, it's not like there was something going on that they didn't notice. I mean, in a sense, it was. You know, obviously the kind of um, material uh, undergirding of the Corbyn movement in terms of things like you know the housing market and um, the politics of austerity and the rest of it. They did miss all that stuff to an extent. But, you know, it was like, with Corbynism, I just think it, w- it was completely there. It was in their face. And as political yeah. reporters, it didn't seem to occur to them to actually kind of figure out what, it, what was going on and to treat it seriously. Did you see, by the way, that... Um, well, there's no reason why you should have done, but Ellie Mayo Hagen... Uh, tweeted that she found the the media had become more hostile towards Corbyn supporting um, journalists like uh, since the election. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because so, they because they're seen as being more like they're not kind of harmless eccentrics anymore. They're actually yeah. Well, she didn't say the reason, someone. but I thought it was interesting because you know you don't most of us don't have regular interactions with uh, with these media institutions. We just see the you know the, the outputs. And sure. it's sometimes difficult to get a sense of that because obviously you're not consuming everything or whatever. But it was interesting for that, you know, because she's one of the fairly small, um, tight group of people who are sort of on the left within the British media. 
and that's that's her impression anyway. That it, that since the election they've become more hostile, which I, I she didn't say, um, but I presume it it would would prefer to um, the broadcasters and the sort of liberal left liberal press because you know she's not writing anything in the Times or anything, or it could have been referring to the sort of abuse from Times journalists who, and the rest of them who seem to have got a little bit um, unhinged. I mean, the other thing to say, I think, about this, about this sort of, um, these systemic sort of failures to describe, it comes across really very vividly in the discussion around housing. It's, it's, become, it's become politically salient, really, since the election, where, again, political commentators have woken up to the fact that most people under 40 don't feel they have a realistic prospect of owning a house or being able to rent a, a family house um, in a, at an affordable rent or a rent that is consistent with a with a family life. Yeah, or and, even just a flat, like just own anything. Well, right, right, and and to not end up paying, you know, a huge proportion of your salary um, just to keep kind of sheltered and and. And this has been a this has been a tightening noose around people in this country since really since the late nineties. I mean, you know, in different markets, different regions, for different different um, demographics, housing quality has been been deteriorating and has been re- being increasing in cost for you know for twenty years, if not longer. And it has taken until really this summer. For for the elite media to realise this is happening, and I think that is a that's to to my mind an index of just how insulated they are um, from from the realities that, that yeah, a lot of people it's face. And I think to combine that as well, I mean, because you know, I mentioned this earlier in terms of yeah, the sort of conditions underlying Corbynism is you know the other factor is wages because we've got a situation where for most people your wages are stagnant or, or are not keeping, up, not keeping up with inflation for many people. So you're, you're living, um, your, your costs are going up. Your rent goes up all the time. You're usually having to move um, places. I mean, forgive me, it's a bit of a London-based sort of perspective. I think it's similar in other cities as well. And it's a problem which is just more I mean, extreme. I mean, just it. as a sidebar, I think it's, it's, it's similar in all cities where there are where there is some some sort of di- dynamism in the in the in the employment sector, yeah. Yeah, um, but come on. Yeah. Well, no, I was just going to say that the you know the other thing is is wages over the last decade, you know, which is, so you've got this combination of um, asset inflation, um, unsustainable yeah. asset inflation, and depressed wages, and that obviously leads to a certain <laughs> conditions of life for people. It's just yeah, the, the the media institutions just don't seem to have grasped any of that. You know, and the thing that they always tend to talk about is um, how great it is that we have um, increased employment. You know, yeah. the amount that you hear that on the BBC, I think is kind of extraordinary, really. And, yeah, so I, I think on the one hand, you get um, a certain indifference or lack of awareness of just people's everyday lives. And then on the yeah. other hand, you just have this sort of willful indifference or hostility towards um, yeah, a political movement which which comes about and su- successfully to a degree um, yeah. being able to give expression to that. Um, now, Well, and, and uh, interestingly, yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, Corbynism kind of builds on 
what Gilbert would see as a fairly stable socialist block in the country. As you say, changing conditions, particularly after 2007, but, but going back further than that, changing material conditions have meant that that 25% has kind of reached out into different social groupings. Yeah. Um, and, the, like, the media have, have, or the broadcasters, I think, are particularly re- relevant here, the broadcasters haven't registered the existence of this socialist bloc, even while they were desperately keen to amplify the kind of UKIP empire nostalgia um, that they that they started to favour in, in the immediate post-crisis period. And I think it's unforgivable um, the way in which the BBC responds to a massive crisis in the financial sector by, by energising and giving a, a, you know, airspace to a discourse which is, which is blaming migrants and which is appealing to a kind of half-remembered uh, past for its for its political energy and and not addressing reality, um, so yeah, so they miss that they they miss this stable um, social coalition as you say they miss these changing um, material conditions, and I would just sort of end this this little rant rant by just saying to to people young people in particular, voting really matters right the only the only bludgeon that you have it seems to me with this with this media establishment, is to actually vote for, like, better housing, vote for better public services. If you vote for it, if you turn up when they weren't expecting you to turn up, they do notice that. So you, you, you're, um, you've broken, as with the Russell Brand um, position there, then? Another, I'm not, another I think it's fair to say... I think a lot of influence with the kids. Um, I think it's fair to there. say that I'm not, I'm not an orthodox Brandite. No. Um, it's, it's, I'm a heterosexual... I would define myself as a heterodox Brandite. This means that they, they're not going to have your news night saying, why have you said that to young people, Mr. Hind? <laughs> What's the matter with you? <laughs> Again, no, um, I, I would like to support Dan's um, because I know that we have a lot of young listeners. Um, it's true. There. Most of our, most of our demographic are... <laughs> or or sort anyone of... else who's uh, trying to date with the neoliberal consensus. Yeah, express an interest in my membership of the Labour Party. We don't want to turn into a, a cheerleading show. Now, back to the question of how all of this stuff has played out post-election um, sure. in the media. The uh, we we have had a series of reflections on on what what is wrong with the media, if not quite, or maybe not as what is wrong with the media, but what's going wrong and uh, and how that might be addressed and. There are a few analyses, analyses which I guess would uh, depart from from how we would that's, see things. That's right, and I mean to a greater or lesser extent. So I think, yeah, one of the big changes that, from our perspective, um, has happened since the election, we we did have this bout of of sort of critical introspection that wasn't that critical in the end. Um, we've also had a number of quite big names in journalism um, making public interventions, talking about as it were, the, the state of the media as a sector. So looking beyond you know, immediate shortcomings in electoral coverage or anything like that, but looking at the, like the state of state of the art in media, one of them was uh, John Snow's McTaggart lecture in, in Edinburgh, which we talked about in some detail with Sarah O'Connell in one of our um, episodes, uh, in two of our episodes over the summer, which you can you can find on iTunes. Um, and the other one was a more recent uh, lecture by Nick Robinson um, talking about um, a, uh, uh, a media space sort of characterised by 
um, declining levels of trust um, or a media political space uh, characterised in that way. Um, John Harris stuck in Darwin as well, didn't he? And John Harris wrote a piece as well, which is which I would sort of file under kind of slightly slightly eccentric kind of interventions in that um, he made this argument that. Um, that you know, if we don't have in, if we don't have an independent journalistic sector, and if it's all, if it all becomes attached to political projects, then um, did he say, you know, who will speak truth to power? Were those the words he used? I think that was in the headline. Um... We mustn't assume that the headline is has signed off by the writer, but the, but the, but one of the arguments, one of the key arguments that he was making, it seems to me, was that um, we need this non-partisan fourth estate. Um, well, what he says coming... is that he doesn't say truth to power. Yeah, you're right, that's in the headline. What he says is, um, power will not be held to account and vested interests will be free to run riot if we, if we don't have, if we have sort of partisan journalism. Right, and this is, I think it's a very peculiar argument coming from someone who's actually, who's actually been, you know, very closely involved with various currents of um, thinking in the, in the Labour Party at various times. But completely I don't... neutral thinking, though, that was, wasn't it? That wasn't a political yeah. project. That was just um... right. Patriotic common sense. Yeah. Um, for for dads. Um, <laughs> um, but um, I mean, I mean, you wrote you wrote an interesting response to to Robinson's lecture. So um, why don't we so why don't we talk a bit about about what Robinson said and what that that tells us about the state of play. Um, in these kind of um, big-name interventions? Yeah, so um, Robinson's lecture, it was, it was trailed by um, a Guardian article, wasn't it, which was naming um, and putting a particular focus on alternative media sites, as he called them. Uh, no, he didn't call them that. He, um, how did he refer to them? Was it alternative media sites? I think that's right, yeah. Um, called them alternative media sites, um, alternative, whatever you want to call them, independent um, and he lists a bunch of them, you know, on left, left and right, and I think he mentioned um, the New European as a sort of centrism. So it's got the whole, whole sort of political spectrum, as it were, fairly balanced. But what he was kind of trying to argue was that these, uh, there's been a turn towards anti-BBC um, perspectives on these websites, and that this was part of a guerrilla war that was being waged against the BBC. Yeah, that's a phrase he actually used, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he says that. Yeah. And then, I mean, and the, the, the full text of his lecture was then um, published online by by the BBC, where, I mean, interestingly, he didn't then mention um, Navarra Media or Schwartbooks, um, which were the two of the sort of Corbyn-supporting media which were mentioned in the piece, and it's not really clear why. I mean, perhaps it was a result of um, pushback from what he said after the Guardian article was published. But... Basically, what he, he, he makes this argument in this lecture, and it, the, he, he says, okay, people have become less trusting of the media. What, why is this the case? And he says that there's two reasons. Um, one of them is to do with political polarisation, and the other one is to do with social media and alternative media websites. And he says that these alternative media websites are putting about um, this idea that the BBC is biased as part of a guerrilla war against the BBC, although it's not really clear um, what, to what end exactly. Um, he doesn't really spell that out in either the uh, Guardian article or the lecture. And then he says, okay, in combination with that, we have social media, which is, basically creates these kind of um, self-affirming kind of political 
networks online, you know, where you only, you're only exposed to um, views that you agree with. And this, this sort of um, perpetuates um, and reinforces um, prejudice and wrong ideas and whatever, because our ideas are never sort of tested and, you know, the whole national conversation, as it were, becomes um, fractured. Um, so he says these two elements have led to a decline of trust in, in the BBC. And so, and the response, he says, is to remake the argument for impartiality, which he says is it's claimed by these um, by people. It, it, it's basically a, a conspiracy to try and um, to try and obscure establishment interests, and that actually he says it's very important, and we need to to reassert it, it, its values and the importance of impartiality in, in an age of like alternative media and social media and, and the rest of it. So that, that's his kind of argument in a nutshell. In, in as, as he pointed out to me on Twitter in a 7,000 word um, lecture. And you wrote a piece which I, I can recommend that people go and have a look at on Open Democracy, responding to um, his his lecture. Yeah. Um, just, do you want to sort of summarise in a couple of sentences yeah, I mean, for the listeners? Well, just briefly, I mean, you know, go and read it, it's there, and you know, so I, I won't waste too much time sort of going over, going over the arguments here, because I sort of look into some of the claims that Robinson makes in a fair amount of detail, but I mean, I think the, the underlying point, um, really, of that piece is that at no point does he ever address the, the BBC, the broadcasters, and the press directly themselves. So he has a conversation about declining trust in the media without at any point really, really discussing the media substantively. Um, and this includes, you know, in the case of the BBC, which is what I focused on and really what he focused on. There's, there's no, he never, he never thinks to, to ask himself, okay, could what the BBC has done, could the BBC, BBC itself, be a factor in why people don't trust the BBC? Right. And that never enters the conversation. And I, I thought this was just kind of extraordinary, really. So that was the main point I wanted to make in my piece. And I made sure. a few sort of asides about um, this question of political polarisation and the role of social media and, and the rest of it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was the, uh, the piece. So go and, go and read it there on democracy. And you then, you shared the piece with, with uh, Robinson on, on Twitter. And he's come back and said that you have essentially he he claims that you've misrepresented his position um and there's a there's an ongoing discussion there which um again listeners can kind of go and go and have a look at but i think the initial his initial response is very interesting because rather than engage again in the substance of what you're saying he just tries to shoot the messenger effectively he tries to say oh no you're not a reliable Interlocutor, you, you, you're misrepresenting yeah, my position. Yeah, he said straight away that I misrepresented him, but he, did, he said it in a really weird way. I mean, he can't he can't really think this because I, I quote him like in in the actual piece. I go into quite a lot of detail examining the claims that he's made. I, I don't at any point misrepresent him, and he yeah. so he says, um, "Oh, you claim that I said um, alternative media websites are are leading are." leading to a loss of trust in the BBC, and I don't say that. Well, I mean, he does say that. You know, and yeah. he quite, quite explicitly says it in yeah. his Guardian piece and in the lecture. And what he tries to do is to say, oh, uh, you know, you, you said that this, I said this is all about turning to the media, but actually I said clearly it's about um, polarisation in society and our national debate, you know, which is, I mean, at no point did I say that he didn't say that either. I mean, I actually fully quote him in, 
the article. So he just he just basically tried to. He seems to be now saying, first of all, I represented him, although he's not presented any evidence of that. And secondly, yeah. he's saying um, he's he's now saying that he hasn't <laughs> he hasn't said that um, alternative media have led to a, a loss of trust in the BBC. So the, yeah. the latest response that he said, um, he said. I don't, I'll read it out. I didn't blame them for falling trust, them being the alternative media websites, you know, the Canary and the Bar and the others that they made. I did say their agenda was to undermine rather than improve mainstream broadcasters different. So he's yeah. explicitly saying now they're not responsible for a falling for trust, even though he said explicitly in the lecture that they were. And yeah. it doesn't even make any sense because... If they, if they haven't had any effects on the fallen trust, why was he discussing them in the first place? And why was it the thrust of his um, Guardian article and also his appearance on the media show, which were trailing, both trailing the lecture? Um, so it's all a little bit peculiar. It is peculiar, and I think and I, it's, it's sort of fascinating to, to watch, and, and um, uh, it, will, it will no doubt continue, and I recommend people um, who are on Twitter to go and... Go and um, Follow the unfolding drama. When we're done, I, it, I will tweet back again to Nick Robinson what the claim he made and the section of his lecture, and just compare the two and see what he says. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see how how that goes because to a to an untrained eye, it looks very much to me like uh, he is contradicting himself quite directly. But I think it's interesting as well in that it it's it he's still like. By by sort of attacking you in the way that he does on social media, he's trying to kind of claim for himself and retain for himself really the prerogatives of the broadcast journalist where, you know, a confident manner and the ability to talk um, authoritatively covers a multitude of sins. And actually, if you're on Twitter and you say things which are mutually inconsistent, like, the record is there. And it, and it becomes, I think, much more difficult to maintain... Um, almost a kind of aristocratic um, uh, idea of uh, you know the, the commentator as um, as a legitimate public speaker, where everyone else is a kind of howling mob. Um, so anyway, I think we'll we'll see how that how that develops over the next few days, and whether uh, we hear again from Mr. Robinson. Um, but both. Both Robinson and Snow earlier in the year, I think, were interesting in that they they are starting to notice um, the the central importance of the digital uh, platforms yeah. in the dissemination of of, of news and, and factual content. Yeah, I mentioned and that it, in the piece actually because you know they, they I mean in different ways they they both mentioned I mean Facebook and Google are much more central to John Snow's speech and and, and in a way you know. I would actually much more recommend that people. I would recommend that people do actually listen to um, John Snow's speech. You know, I, I don't think he had much, but in the way of sort of solutions. But I think, to me, it was a much more honest assessment of of where we are with um, with broadcasting. I think you're right. Yeah, and, I think you're um, right. I think I have a lot more sympathy I think, with him actually. Yeah, I agree. I, it felt it felt like a very um, a very humane uh, and you know properly self critical discussion of. Uh, of elite media, um, but as I say, in both cases, they were they were aware of um, the the growing importance of Facebook. And this has come up again um, in the last week or so, where Facebook has been running a pilot um, in some some markets. I think Slovakia is one of them, where they are 
essentially making access to news uh, to timelines by publishers a kind of pay-to-play proposition. So um, if you are a publisher and you want to get into people's timelines, you effectively have to now um, pay um, to to reach um, your audiences. And this is, I think, perhaps concentrated minds amongst journalists that actually um, the the Facebook that they thought was a sort of a platform where they could compete for, for views with other publishers um, is actually a corporation with its own interests, um, which has significant implications for um, the news sector as a as a whole. One of the, the one of the telling responses this week on uh, the BBC's media program, they had I think the the managing director of Gannett on, who said Facebook is making all this money out of uh, journalism. It needs to give something back much the same way that the BBC is now subsidising um, the employees of these big local media um, giants to to produce civic reporting on things like court cases and so on. He was saying, if, you know, Facebook needs to start, and presumably Google as well, they need to start um, giving subsidies to journalism. And clearly the idea is that the subsidies will go to established players like Gannett, uh, like NewsQuest and so on. Um, and I think this is the real danger of the digital levy as a as a proposal is that, as with um, um, the the way that the license fee is being given to um, com- commercial um, established sort of legacy players, um, the danger I think is that the levy will go to prop up um, operations quote traditional or or established journalistic operations, which will not disrupt um, the, the uh, uh, elite interests. Um, they, will be, they will be expected to produce responsible journalism, which is to say the kind of journalism that reproduces all the pathologies of uh, social isolation, you know, um, partiality, uh, like failures to observe, and so on that we've been talking about over the last few months. And so I think this is the point where, where media and democracy really kind of collide it's like we are in it we are moving towards a digital um a digitally uh, kind of mediated media regime and if we don't get a, a political grasp of this um, and understand it as being key to the the, the creation of a, a functioning democracy we will see um elected representatives and private property the diplomats at the BBC and the and the sort of maniac billionaires in the in the private press, but they will they will they will conjure up something which looks like a plural digital sphere, which, as I say, reproduces these pathologies. Uh, if if people want to read um, a bit more about this, um, I wrote um, a long essay last year called "The Public and the Mass," looking at the implications of this move towards uh, a digital public space and away from broadcast and print, and it's on Amazon, and you can buy it. <laughs> yeah, do go, do go and buy Dan's essay and read up on that. I mean, I think, I think that's absolutely right, and I think the, um, you know, what we're seeing here, or, and it seems to be playing out through this, you know, those, that discussion on um, the media show, which I guess is our closest competitor in this market, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's fair. <laughs> um, they've probably got more subscribers than us. So, hey, anyone listening to this, give us a review on iTunes. We need to take over the media fund. Um, not take them over, I mean 
take them. We're not going to we're not going to go on the BBC <laughs> on the media show, but overtake them in terms of listenership. So right, that's a nice review. Um, yeah, there's clearly an attempt to reach an accommodation between Facebook and other tech giants and these other institutions, which is going to be amenable to everybody. Um, yeah, everybody apart from us, basically. Yeah, and. I think that's another reason why, when it comes to the development of a policy agenda, that that we, that the other, everyone else needs to start taking this issue seriously and start thinking about it in a joined-up fashion, which is part of something that we're you know starting to try and do on this show. Because, I mean, looking say for a, a labour policy, you have two elements to existing labour policy. One of which is the sort of digital democracy manifesto stuff, which is all to do with you know the online space and mutuals, and and there's lots of good ideas coming out of there, and there's a crossover there between the alternative models of ownership um, document, and on the other hand, the sections on the existing um, broadcast and media and the press in the Labour manifesto, which is um, just doesn't involve any of that stuff, and actually I think. You know, the, the trick really now is going to be thinking about both these things in a joined up way because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to figure out how the existing structures of the broadcasting establishment and the corporate press can reach some sort of accommodation with the emerging tech giants. And they will, re- they will, they will, it'll probably be brokered by politicians, but they will probably reach some sort of accommodation. I mean, partly yeah. because Facebook doesn't want to produce news. Um, you know, but it does want to have news on its website. How much of a bargaining chip the existing, you know, news organisations have with Facebook? You know, who knows how mm-hmm. that would, would work out exactly. But it's, you know, I, I guess from Facebook's perspective, they want people sharing news and entertainment items on their website, and it's part yeah. of the broader industry on which they draw. You know, in terms of advertising, PR, celebrity news, and sure. all of that stuff. So you can see them reaching the combination. I mean, what it would look like, who knows? But yeah, I, I completely agree, and I think that's why we need to be thinking um, in the in a joined up way about, about this as well. I mean, I think there are there's a couple of useful analogies. I mean, I mentioned earlier the the BBC giving money to local media publishers, local media newspaper publishers, to subsidise um, civic journalism, reporting on councils, reporting on um, local. Uh, uh, court cases and so on, and I think that's a that's a that's the model that Gannett was pitching to the political elites is to say, look, um, you've got a problem um, uh, with how you are being represented on Facebook, um, how you're being represented in um, in the digital space more generally. You need to strong arm these people into um, subsidising us so that we can we can restore kind of responsible reporting. The other analogy which I think is interesting and illuminating is the way that um, both the press and, uh, to some extent, the radio sector um, in the US in the 20th century, um, as it grows in power and importance, it starts to realise that it needs to appear impartial and professional. It needs to start squeezing out um, of of responsible um, publications, squeezing out the kind of sensationalism um, that had perhaps characterised the popular press um, in the second half of the of the nineteenth century. So you get a, a new emphasis on uh, the need for um, objective reporting and so on. And I think Facebook will be tempted to go down a similar route of saying, you know, what we don't actually want the hassle that comes from people buying up, you know, producing fake news and and you know 
generating clickbait nonsense that may or may not swing elections and stuff. We don't need that static. What we need is journalism, which is lively and, and apparently plural, um, but which doesn't piss off the politicians. Um, so, as you say, they are, I think, very actively trying to figure out how to manage this digital transition. And, and they're doing so by taking seriously the notion of political economy. There's a political element to this, there's an economic element to this. And, and I think Labour really does need, as you say, to join up the economic uh, element of, it, of its thought um, with, a, with, a, with a political analysis of the media and to, and so, and so in, in order to be able to say, actually, the way in which we want to democratise the economy um, should help inform the ways in which we think about, say, democratising the BBC um, through, as you say, kind of notions of mutuality or... or anyway, there's a, whole, there's a whole kind of debate to be had about what a digital... BBC looks like in a functioning democracy, for example. Um, and, and at the moment, as you say, that the explicitly kind of media-oriented bits of their, of their policy platform seem to me to be addressing um, the old regime. They're addressing a regime where broadcast and print were dominant, and that's increasingly not the case. Um, so that's, um, that's where we are, I think, with those, with those aspects of labor policy yeah. um, is there anything else you think um, that has struck you that has changed over the summer or that we want to mention about the future well um, I, th I think we've covered the main things haven't we I mean the, 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 there's some interesting emerging discussions which we're going to be keeping an eye on I think there's a, there's a, there's a sort of you and I and, and other people are trying to work on developing a kind of policy agenda and hopefully you know, with, with the second season, we're going to be discussing more about, um, yeah, the, the digital future and what's going on with the establishment. Um, I, I wondered if, it, um, before we wrap things up for this season, whether you wanted to just mention the Media Fund, which is uh, which are our sponsor for this this podcast, yeah. because they, um, the Media Fund has some exposure, um, and there's a there's a hard launch. I think next month is what. Um, Tom called it. We had uh, Thomas Barlow on the show uh, this season, so do go back and, and listen to that show if, if you missed it. Um, One of the neglected gems, I think, of the season so far. Yeah, I yeah. mean, of, of the season. Underdog. I mean, it, uh, it's a scrappy underdog, but I think it's, I think it's a really interesting show. Yeah. I think, the, you know, the reason you and I have both kind of gravitated towards the Media Fund is that we, it's clear that we need some sort of coordinating body um, to say that, that there is a whole set of um, alternative perspectives that are, by hook and by crook, gaining some traction. They're doing so, again, primarily uh, through, by leveraging uh, the digital space in various ways. And as a sidebar, this is one of the reasons why I think Nick Robinson's comments about people like Navarra were so incredibly irresponsible, because he's reinforcing the idea that there are respectable, um, responsible journalists, and then there's this this, uh, this irresponsible world of, of online comment-mongering. And yet, you know, you look at this week in the Telegraph, that they splash a picture of a, of a young Cambridge student and make a set of completely fictitious claims about how this young person is, is aiming to drive white men off the, the literary canon or whatever, whatever it was. And this, this is accepted. This is seen as an acceptable thing to do, to essentially troll... On the, on the front page of a newspaper, um, someone who's just kind of starting out in life and just trying to, 
trying to figure out what's going on. I think it's completely unforgivable. Um, so, as I say, there there are these people who are, are managing to break through to to some extent, and we've seen again over the summer. I think uh, open democracy has really grown in stature, in part because of its reporting on um, the dark money in the in the Brexit referendum, which is which is well worth kind of exploring. Um, but they are very dependent on this digital space, and we have a window where it's possible um, for 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 um, alternative points of view not only to be published but also to be picked up and to and to generate um, some momentum, to to use a word advisedly. Um, but that 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 mo- this moment of relative flexibility and fluidity in the media system will not last unless we intervene in it. Um, to make sure that uh, that what emerges from uh, from the, the in the digital regime uh, supports uh, and enables democracy, and as I say, the media fund I think is a very useful institution to start organising around because it's it's a material institution. It wants to direct money uh, to journalistic projects. It wants to embody um, notions of cooperation and egalitarianism and democracy in the way that it functions. And I think it's a very promising way of trying to interrupt a conversation which can um, be you know, too constrained by um, competitive pressures that all media, individual media institutions find themselves under. So not to be too self-serving, but I do think it's, it's, it would be great for people to go and find out more about the Media Fund and maybe consider contributing to it. Do that. Um, go to the website and keep, and keep an eye on um, any developments from the media fund. Follow them on Twitter and all the other social media outlets that went before everyone by by listing them all. Um, so Dan, I think that that brings us to the end of the show and the end of our first season. It's the end of the first season. So um, what a finale! What a finale! That was a two. That was a two cups of coffee finale for me. <laughs> and um, I hope the I hope the readers enjoy. What we, we we managed, and I can only end by saying it's been an absolute treat to work with you and to interview the people that we've spoken with over the summer. Um, I think I've certainly enjoyed myself immensely, and um, yeah, I look forward to to um, speaking to to our listeners again in the near future. Yeah, thanks for joining us, um, and we will be back soon with a bigger and better and brighter season. Um, and we're going to have, uh, to play us out from this season, um, Tommy McKay from Edinburgh. Something different for you all. But, um, bye. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to do that. Brilliant. And here's to you, Mr. Robinson. Coombsburg loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God bless you, please, Mr. Robinson. Newsnight likes to stay above the fray. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. We'd like to know a little bit about you for our files. Like the fact that you were a young Tory. Look around the news team at the sympathetic eyes. Strike through Broadcasting House, I'm sure you'll be at home. And here's to you, Mr. Robinson. Patsman loves you more than you will know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. 
God bless you, please, Mr. Robinson. The knighthood must quite soon be on its way. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. Slide into a short aside that no one ever checks. Sneak it in the clothes before the handshake. It's a little biased, just the Robinson's affair. Most of all, you've got to keep it off YouTube. Could, could, could you, Mr. Robinson? Joe Colburn loves you more than you all know. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What's that you say, Mr. Robinson? You'll join the BBC Trust one fine day. Hey, hey, hey. Sitting on a sofa on a Sunday morning show Going to the candidates' debates Laugh about it, shout about it When we've got to choose Every way we look at it, we lose When will you go, Mr. Robinson? A nation turns its open eyes from you Whoa, whoa, whoa What's that you say, Mr. Robinson? Salmons didn't answer, so you say Hey, hey, hey Hey, hey, hey